From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Following a rough stretch after their landmark upset of Tennessee, men's basketball bounced back on Wednesday against Ole Miss. But in a game that saw Colin Castleton leave with an injury, at what cost did the victory come? On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter and the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, to discuss the status of Todd Golden's star big man, where they sit relative to the March Madness field, an explosive start for softball, baseball ready to roar out of the gates, the quartet of Gators who need to be sized for Super Bowl rings, who has the most to prove at the NFL Combine, and whether the time and score of a game should influence what calls officials make in the PAT. Then, Florida baseball broadcaster Jeff Cardozo covers all the bases in a preseason chat with head coach Kevin O'Sullivan. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet health care destination with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. We have the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, and of course, FloridaGators.com senior writers, Scott Carter and Chris Harry here uh, with a lot of things to get to, but we're going to start with the thing that uh, took over all of the headlines for Gator Nation on Wednesday night, and that was the loss of Colin Castleton in the win against Ole Miss. And, you know, Chris, in, in one sense, the, th- the story we thought tonight was going to be about was Florida getting, you know, a must win to stay on a possible path to get to the NCAA tournament. However, the story we now talk about afterwards is very little about that and, and more about the reality of, of the Gators losing, who is without question their most important player. Yeah. And as much as it was uh, good for the Gators to win the game, it, it, if things had not taken such a, a, a nasty turn, I may have been still talking about how devastating the Vanderbilt was lost Saturday was given, you know, what the Gators had gone through those previous four games to be at home finally and to lose that game. And uh, I mean, that was bad, but obviously this pales in comparison. Um, you know, you feel bad for the team, but you just feel awful for, for Colin. He was having, uh, I mean, he's having a first team all conference year. I mean, just to throw something out, um, he went in this game, <laughs> he was the first player since Dwayne Shinsis, okay, to have uh, three games of 25 and 10 in the same season. And he'd done it three games in a row. Um, if he had done it a fourth game, uh, he would have been the first one to do it since 1969, a fellow by the name of Andy Owens. That wasn't going to happen. When he got hurt, he only had three points. Uh, he had three rebounds. He had four assists, but he had helped the Gators to a double-digit lead. You know, it's just uh, the players, when they came in afterward, they, they weren't sure, they were hopeful. Um, but the news came uh, not long after that. And it's, 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 it's devastating news because, obviously, you talk about your leading scorer, your leading rebounder, an elite rim protector, leads the league in block shots. Um, you know, everything runs through him on both sides. Uh, unselfish player, uh, team first guy. So now you 
Now you got to rally the troops. I mean, this isn't one person that can take Colin Castleton's place. It's going to have to be a bunch of people. And, um, you know, at 14 and 12 and seven and six, uh, there wasn't any margin for error to begin with. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think, <laughs> I think this is kind of going to tell a lot about the team. I'm sure there'll be people say, well, we'll, we'll see what this team is made of now. Yes, we will. Absolutely. And there's a lot of guys that there's guys that are playing, you know, 12 to 17, 18 minutes, that are going to be playing some very meaningful minutes, and it starts Saturday at Arkansas. It was already pretty clear after the the Vanderbilt game that there was no margin for error. Virtually, probably had to win out to make the tournament. Um, the most difficult game, theoretically, was this weekend at Arkansas. Uh, how does Florida share this load? How can they overcome the loss of Colin Castleton with so little margin for error? You're not going to replace Colin Castleton. You're definitely going to have to share it. That's the that's the operative word right there. And obviously the the person that steps to the forefront is Jason Totobo. He did a nice job tonight. Now he, he got in the game at 1505 when Colin walked out. Um, and he didn't leave the floor till 44 seconds were left in the game. That's the longest he's ever been in a game. And now, granted, I don't know how that's gonna play in uh Bud Walton Arena, uh, or how that's gonna play uh you know, at Vanderbilt uh, in a couple weeks, uh, at Georgia in a couple weeks. Um, he's he's not been a guy who can play extended minutes. And he's and and you can say it's because of his conditioning, and I think he's done a better job with that, but it's also because he fouls too much. Um, but in 17 minutes tonight, he only had two fouls. So that's to his credit. He had he had two assists. That's pretty good. I put probably his career high, I bet. Um, the other guy is yeah, two he's four points, two rebounds, two assists. Yeah, he, he was two for two for two from the free throw line, so good for him. But his, I will say this about Jason, and I mentioned this to somebody last year when they needed him to play, and he knew he was going to play a lot. He played really, really well. So maybe there's something to that in terms of how he plays, knowing he's got to be a guy. All right, versus you know maybe you get in there, maybe you, get, you don't, and you play eight minutes a game, or or how or how however many he's been. But his role uh, changed just changed uh, uh, in a flash. So did Alex Fudge. Now Alex Fudge um, got a concussion eight seconds into the win at Mississippi State about a month ago, and really hadn't been the same guy since then. He's uh, his minutes have been down. He's got obviously that took away his starting job. Will Richards has been playing undersized at the starting four position. But Fudge came in today. He had seven points, uh, five rebounds. Uh, had a had a pretty nice block shot. I mean, they're gonna they're just they're just gonna need more out of those two guys. And now, like I said, with Will Richards at six five was playing the four, the starting four to begin with. So uh, you know the, the 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 team's gonna be smaller. They've struggled when it comes to rebounding this year a lot. I mean, hell, uh, Ole Miss isn't exactly. Um, uh, Alabama on the glass, but you know they won thirty eight thirty on the glass and sixteen to four on the offensive end. At halftime, it was eleven to one on the offensive side. Um, you're gonna have to lean on these. You know, you lose this guy now. Will now? Uh, I, I say, I say, Myron Jones and Kyle Lofton become much more important because now they're the fifth, fifth year guys on the floor. Uh, you're just gonna have to get more. You're just going to have to ask for more out of Will Richards, more out of Kowasi Reeves. Uh, he was pretty good tonight, actually. He was 5-9 and nine from the floor, 2-4 of four from 3, and obviously he'd been struggling. I think uh, going into the game the other day, I think he was I think he was 9 for 51 or something like that in SEC play from the three-point line. But we're, we're going we're gonna to see how um, Todd Golden kind of uh, scrambles the masses here. 
because it's uh it's 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 going to be a very very difficult situation. The good thing about it is you you don't have to play Alabama again. You don't have to play Tennessee again. Uh, the the hardest game is the Arkansas game Saturday night. It's the only quad one probably on their schedule until the SEC tournament. Um, it's it's a really tough break for for the team. Really really tough. I, I feel horrible because Colin came back to be the guy on this team, and he was the guy. And his goal was to make the NCAA tournament. And and you know you just you just kind of look back and you, you just you can't help but feel for him right now. I want to turn our attention to Florida softball. Uh, obviously, last week we talked to Tim Walton, deep dive on what to expect this year. He said that uh, for this team to be successful, they're going to have to score a lot of runs. And in their opening week in Tampa and then back at home, uh, they certainly did that in, uh, in bunches. Uh, well, 54 to 2 is the combined <laughs> score of the four games. And that they uh, they lost the game to a to a rain delay. They would they would have played USF on Sunday in their annual um, lid lifter tournament down in Tampa, but uh, beat Boston U eleven two, beat Illinois State twenty one nothing, beat Boston College nine nothing, and then uh, Tuesday night they went to Jacksonville and won thirteen to two. You can't. I mean these these obviously aren't powerhouse uh, softball programs they're playing. Florida is and probably will be a powerhouse again this season. They were picked to. Uh, to win the Southeastern Conference again, obviously there's some holes that have to be filled on this team that, uh, you know, they've, they've, they've got designs of doing that, obviously. But um, losing Hannah Adams was significant. Losing uh, Natalie Lugo in the circle was significant. Um, Tim Walton always has a plan. And uh, they've made do with – I mean, they didn't have a bit major influx, uh, new players to come in, you know, sudden impact players, as it were, um, he believes that he that he has some players uh, on hand. Um, one of the players that he talks about is Sarah Longley, who was here last year and hit 174. Um, she led the team in hitting in the fall after they moved her to catcher. She was basically a outfield kind of utility kind of player uh, last year. Um, her she debuted uh, this past week. She had 250, only had one hit, but she but she played catcher all four games. She's going to be running the pitchers. Uh, running the defense, being the captain out there. Uh, Skylar Wallace is back, obviously. She had a tremendous year last year. Uh, uh, Kendra Falvey in center field, speedy leadoff hitter. We haven't dove into anything, any games of substance so far, but Florida at fifth in the country will will be a player nationally. And as usual, they'll expect to uh, to end their to end their season in Oklahoma City. And then, you know, when 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 we talk about them again in a in a few weeks, uh, you'll, we'll, we'll have a better sample size of what exactly to expect from them because they will have played some much better teams by then. The start of softball means the start of baseball shortly behind them. We're going to have Kevin O'Sullivan on here in just a few minutes to talk a little bit more in depth about it. Uh, but guys, just to, some some background thoughts on baseball as they begin their season. And, you know, as we talked about last week, Scott, try to get back to the standard the program is set because it's, it's been a while now since a trip to Omaha. I think that is the uh, tone around the program from what I gather. This is a team that that's where they expect in the season if everything goes uh, well on the mound. And, um, you know, it starts with Brandon Sprope, uh, the big right-hander who came back uh, after getting drafted by the Mets uh, in the third round after last season. Uh, he really came on and was a huge reason why they were, you know, in position of the NCAA tournament, you know, getting to host. And you got Hurston Waldrop after him. And then you got Jack Caglione, likely uh, Brandon Neely, 
in the mix. Uh, I like their starting rotation, Adam. And, um, you know, Sully has had so many of those kind of teams over the years that really built around starting pitching and a solid bullpen. And I think this team kind of has the look that, that fits that profile. And then, you know, you line up, it can't be ignored when you have a guy coming back like Wyatt Langford, who, uh, you know, hit 26 home runs last year after, uh, you know, being a reserve mostly as a bullpen catcher as a freshman. He's one of the top pro prospects in college baseball this year. Uh, you add him in there with, you know, Caglione, who I mentioned as a pitcher. He also has a huge bat. Uh, Derek Fabian's back, even though his brother Judd Fabian's headed off to a the Orioles minor league camp this week. Um, uh, Ty Evans in right field. Uh, the one position I'm kind of interested in is center field. Uh, you know, last year Fabian held that down, really held it down for the last uh, three or four years. But they got to find somebody there. Michael Robertson's a guy who I think's tagged early to see what he can do there. He missed all of last season with the hamstring injury, uh, so that's a big uh, opportunity for him. Uh, and then they have a veteran leader, B.T. Ryapel. So, I mean, you talk about all these different pieces, and they all they have what you need to put together a good team. Now it's just a matter of going out there and uh, doing it. And uh, it starts this weekend with Charleston Southern in town for a three-game series. Kevin O'Sullivan's 16th season, guys. Uh, that's You know, he's, gosh, that's it just went by so fast, it seems like. But seven trips to the College World Series. Uh, looking for his eighth, and I, I think he talked about it recently. I mean, that is the goal. Uh, he talked about last year was probably, in retrospect, I think you could say it's probably one of his better seasons because remember they were six and twelve in the SEC, and they were kind of uh, struggling really to find an identity. And then suddenly Sprout took off, and their pitching came around. Some of the guys started waking up at the plate, and the next thing you know, their NCAA tournament hosting the regional didn't work out the way they wanted. Picked to finish behind Tennessee, uh, second in the SEC. So, uh, again, I, I think it's a, a program that has the look right now here as we talk about the opening series of a team that, you know, could have a strong season. They're top 10 in most of your polls. So, we've seen it before. Now they get to go out and try to uh, live up to that reputation. Sean, any thoughts on your first baseball season getting underway? Well, I think I'm coming into a, a season with high expectations. I thought Scott did a great job of kind of giving us a preview of what's to come. And, you know, just getting to see Wyatt Langford here in the last two weeks in preparation for the season, um, we may be talking about a guy that's going to contend for the Golden Spikes Award. Uh, the, the ball explodes off of his bat. And it's also interesting in that you know, Scott rattled off a lot of these guys that are returning or, you know, uh, solidifying positions already. But the depth on this Paul club is pretty remarkable. And it'll be interesting to see what Sully does here in the early weekends of the season in um, how he parses out playing time and figures out exactly how dynamic his lineup or his bench, more importantly, can be as they get closer to conference play. Um, the pitching that I've witnessed as well is – is unbelievable. I mean, to have Friday and Saturday locked down already, and with both of those guys throwing pro stuff now at the college level is is awfully fun to think about what it could mean a couple of months down the road, too. So, um, look, I understand what the conference is. Uh, I've been around a little bit to know, you know, what it takes to to go far, and, and sure, like, sure looks like the Gators check a lot of boxes here. 
it's never a bad time to talk some football. And let's start with uh, Gators in the Super Bowl. I feel like almost every year, there's at least one Gator on each team. There's always a high probability that a Gator will get a ring no matter what. Um, but this is maybe one of the more uh, prominent results of the Gators in the Super Bowl. Not only are four Gators getting rings, but you could argue, I don't know how well you could argue, but you could argue that Kadarius Tony could, maybe should have been MVP. Because that punt return really changed the complexion of the game. He also scored a touchdown. I know Pat Mahomes is Pat Mahomes, but he wasn't exactly spectacular. Uh, I think Kadarius Tony made a case for one of the most impactful Gator performances in a Super Bowl. I think Patrick Mahomes is pretty spectacular in the second half, Adam. I, I, I don't know about you. You know, I'm, I'm not I'm not a football expert, I guess. But he threw for less than 200 yards. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah, he's playing. He's, play, he's playing on one leg as a 26 yard run to set up the you know the game winning uh, field goal or whatever. And okay, uh, fine. Uh, I, I, I don't I don't know if the punt changed the game. Uh, it certainly was a huge a huge play. And as soon as he made that play. Uh, right after he scored that touchdown, I was wondering, you know, he, he might have a chance to uh, to be the MVP of the game, but you got to make more than two plays. Um, it's like the Gator fans that said Percy Harvin should have been the MVP of the of the Super Bowl when for running a kickoff back in a blowout or something uh, uh, back in the year the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. But um, obviously, a huge hand in the, in the outcome. Carlos Dunlap, huge hand in the outcome. Uh, Townsend. You know, holder on the on the game winning kick plus you know whatever he did punts. But Michael P. Ryan on the practice squad will get his ring, so uh, that's a pretty good haul. And uh, I think they recognize champions downstairs in the in the stadium, uh, Super Bowl champions. So all four of those guys will be uh, will be recognized on that front. But um, I think about you know, New York Giants sure didn't spend a lot of whole a whole lot of time trying to make Kadarius Tony work in New York. Um, will they get a, a, a third round pick and a, I believe a sixth round pick? And that guy is a uh, has a potential to change the field any any time he touches the ball. So there are probably some Giants fans watching that watching that game, um, thinking, you know, why would just give this guy away? But that's neither here nor there. Congratulations to all those guys. Andy Reid must have been salivating when he realized how easily he could get Kadarius Tony and what he could do in that offense with Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> I'm glad you guys mentioned that because they absolutely stole Tony from the New York Giants. And I think Tony's performance in the Super Bowl speaks to the other uh, hero for the Kansas City Chiefs. That's their front office. You know, I remember Tyreek Hill gets traded and they're like, what are you doing? <laughs> they got pieces. They got valuable pieces in that deal. They steal Kadarius from the Giants. That front office did everything they could to uh, to get Patrick Mahomes in position to you know, win another Super Bowl. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> just an absolute disaster for the Giants right now and their fans. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I agree with Sean totally. I, I had to look that up the other day to see exactly what they got for him because I figured, okay, maybe, you know, he's a first-round pick just two years ago. But I'm thinking 20th, well, they, He was the 20th pick in the draft, right? Yeah, <laughs> so I'm thinking you know, they're at least getting something good for him. A third and a sixth, two picks, and, you know, third and sixth-round guys in the NFL – you know, a lot of those guys stick, but Kadarius Tony is just a, a game-changing kind of player when healthy. Uh, that's always been his thing. Can he stay healthy enough? Uh, and, you know, even he was on the injured reserve going into or the injured list all up to the Super Bowl Sunday. He was announced as active uh, that morning. And, uh, you know, I, I do feel that punt return especially, even though it's a touchdown catch gave him the 28-27 lead. I thought the punt return, that's when I really felt that, wow, I mean, they've got total momentum here. And, of course, 
a lot of credit to the Eagles, too. I mean, Conte Gardner-Johnson mm-hmm. had, I thought, the best hit of the uh, game. So the Gators definitely showed up on Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, what can you say about Tommy Townsend suiting? I mean, you know, that guy, he's turned into like a, a little cult hero out in Kansas <laughs> He's also one of the NFL's uh, best punters. So, as uh, as Chris and Sean said, congrats to those guys, and uh, it's always cool to see that you know Florida continues to, to produce the kind of talent that makes a difference at the NFL, and that's a that's a good thing for the program. Longest punt return in Super Bowl history for Kadarius Tony. That's all I'm saying. Not trying to take away from Patrick Mahomes. I just I don't know that he made any history in the game. Kadarius Tony did. Just putting it out there. Um, while we're talking football, I want to talk about the guys that were invited to the Combine. Here's that list. Brenton Cox Jr., Trey Dean, Gervon Dexter, Richard Garage, Ventrell Miller, Justin Shorter, Osiris Torrance, Rashad Torrance II, and of course, Anthony Richardson. I'm curious for you guys, the Combine is, is really important for a lot of players to really elevate their status. Which of the guys heading to Indianapolis from this list do you think can make the biggest improvements in their standing based on what the combine is all about? Can I change it? Can I put a wrinkle on that a little bit? Please do. Who has to have a great combine maybe is, is also a category here. And I would put Trey Dean and Brenton Cox into that category. And Trey has done himself a few favors here along the way since leaving Gainesville, as far as boosting his pro stock. But I find that a bunch of guys on that list that you already rattled off don't necessarily need the combine to boost their draft stock in any way. And I guess I'm referring to a guy like Torrance maybe more than anybody else. But I think there are some fringe fringe guys that need the combine or need some measurable to go really go their way or to uh, knock something out of the park to maybe further themselves into a draft board conversation. And, and so that's kind of how I, I didn't want to take away from – how you teed this up, Adam, but that's kind of how I'm looking at several guys on that list. The ball falls off the tee quite often with my questions, so it's no worries. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think the one guy I'm most curious about just in terms of maybe upping his value, like Sean's talking, is, is Cox. I mean, you know, he's going to face a lot of questions from any team that's curious about him and is seriously drafting him, but you know, I saw that video from the uh, the recent postseason game where Bill Belichick and him, they were working out. Belichick was working him out pretty hard. And, you know, they've got a history, obviously, of taking the Gators. Uh, but, you know, he, he and just with the way his career ended here, you know, there's going to be a lot of questions. And undeniably, you look at him, I mean, he passes that eye test. And I think he's got to do some things in those interviews and certainly on the field to maybe win over some teams. And I think from there, I mean, the, the most interesting thing really with any Gator in this whole process at this point is Anthony Richardson. I mean, today he's on the front of ESPN again. I think it's about the third time this in the last 10 days. Uh, these these scouts and talent evaluators, they just loved his upside. And he's firmly in the top 10, it seems like, right now by a lot of these mock drafts. And I don't know if he can help himself a lot. If you're already top 10, but there are three, I think, three quarterbacks ahead of him in the top 10 mock draft that I read McShay put out today. So he's a guy that, but I think he could hurt himself. So it's just going to be fascinating to, to see where he goes and how he develops because he's one of those guys. I mean, he's the most talked about prospect right now in the whole draft. And 
the guy has 13 career starts in college. So uh, it's just something that Gator fans are obviously familiar with the storyline. But now it's becoming national. And you're seeing these things on social media, like me McCom yesterday, you know, showed his the the way he uh, he moved in the pocket up the ladder at Tennessee, and you know you can't teach that kind of thing. So now more people are on the white Gator fans were so what's the word, guys? Kind of bittersweet in Anthony's one year as a starter here. Who's the highest uh, Florida quarterback ever drafted? Is it Tim Tebow? Is it Spurrier? I guess or Grossman? Steve Spurrier, third. third wow. Spurrier. That's before my time, in fairness. It's before my time. Right. Yeah, so it's going to be fascinating to watch. And Anthony, uh, he's got the NFL's attention right now, fully uh, fully grasping uh, what we saw in all this. All the plays that he can make that really nobody else can make. Can you do it consistently? That's going to be the question. And doesn't it make you wonder if he had come back for another season, what he'd be like? If all yeah. this upside is there and all that potential that we saw, we saw with our own eyes, but to Scott's point, with 13 starts under his belt, I, I can only imagine. And I've heard some fans say, and no offense to any of our Gator Nation brethren and sistern, um, the idea that <laughs> man, I'm glad that he, I'm glad that he went ahead and went to the draft, and he's not coming back. I'm like, well, uh, I think you're being short-sighted on that because I, for one, uh, understand and saw the same things you did in his first season as a full-time starter. I sure would have enjoyed maybe seeing how that second one would go. It's amazing what a what a season under your belt, another off season, and you know, a little more time in a, in the same system can do for a for a second year guy. And you know, we won't see that, but uh, the scouts are salivating over the the raw tools. So let's let's see what they can do with him. By the way, John John Reeves, John Bob, the Spurrier's phone. He was the 14th player picked in the 1972 draft. So Steve Spurry, the only top 10 quarterback in Gator history. I believe Tebow was 22, 23. 24th, 24, something like that. Okay. 22nd, 24, that, something like that. Yeah. In that range, in that range. Rex was 22nd. No Shane Matthews love here. Really, my Shane guy. Matthews. No, no <laughs> Shane Matthews love. Ooh, Shane Matthews who carved out the longest career of any of them, right? In the NFL. Thank you. 14 oh, years. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yes. yeah, that's right. That's right. You can make a lot of money holding a clipboard. That's what I've learned about uh, NFL quarterbacks. It's a great job if you can get it, and Shane will uh, gladly let you know about it. <laughs> I think there are some NIL quarterbacks that are making making more than Shane did for his career, though. Probably true. Well, moving on to our PAT, I want to uh, I want to revisit the Super Bowl and and a key storyline that emerged from it, which it's it's nothing new, but it's been a while since we saw a call happen on a scale quite this large that brought this conversation back to the forefront. And that is, at its core, should officials make calls based on time, score, etc.? I'm, of course, talking about the holding call that essentially decided the game there at the very end, though you might disagree with that characterization of it. Um, But if it's a ticky-tack call, do you think that should be called in the late fourth quarter of a tie game the same way it should be in the first quarter? Or do you think officials need to consider the situation, what's happening in the context of how severe is this penalty? Do I have to call this penalty? Should I call this penalty? Or should circumstances change the way that I view it? I am of the opinion that a penalty in the first quarter is a penalty in the fourth quarter. 
I saw a tweet on Wednesday go out. Of, I guess the the NFL films, which everyone looks for, which is always spectacular from the Super Bowl, comes out like in, in a couple of days. Where there is a, a a very good shot of an egregious hold on the play, and the guy's jersey is being pulled back. Yes, did he let it go? Yes, he did. But it's a hold, and the referee saw that. He throw the flag. I I don't understand this whole thing. Is uh, you can't call that at the end of the game to decide the game. Well, I mean, don't hold. You're not supposed to hold in the first quarter. You're not supposed to hold in the second, third. Don't don't hold when the game's on the line. I recall this very similar conversation in the Final Four in 2019 on a foul called. Uh, Kyle Guy was taking a shot from the corner with a half second left in the game, and uh, Darty from Auburn undercut him. He didn't let him come down, and he hit him in the leg while he was in the air. People said, well, you can't call that at that time of the game. Well, yes, you can if it's a foul. So I, I'll never understand that. Um, maybe it needs to happen to a, to, a, to a team I root for, and I'll change my mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the same time, I mean, it, it, if some guy's jersey looks like it's being pulled, like you're pulling a, a, a girl's ponytail or something like that, and that's kind of what, what it looked like, um, I think you got to throw the flag, and uh, you know, it's, it's a tough way to lose a game. But, you know, the, 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 the rules are the rules. And, frankly, I don't know that Patrick Mahomes, even if that, even if that hold isn't called, uh, if, the guy, if the guy catches the pass. So maybe the guy's – the defender's coverage wasn't, wasn't – he wasn't in such a predicament where, where he had to do what he had to do. So I just think if the referee sees it, he's, he's calling that in the third quarter, you got to call it. There's a pivotal moment in my young years when a certain umpire named Don Dinkinger blew a call <laughs> – <laughs> between the Cardinals and the Kansas City Royals that ended up deciding a game, more or less, much like this penalty. It wasn't the most decisive play, but it set up what then happened later. I'm with Chris, though. A penalty is a penalty. I'm just going to throw a few things out there. Well, none of us would want this to happen if, like in basketball, if a foul is called and the replay shows that the guy never touched the other player. Um, a phantom call, if you will. Uh, that one hurts the most. But we have to remember, these guys are calling it in real time. It took until Wednesday for Chris to bring a picture from NFL Films, a snapshot of film quality, slow motion to find a guy's hand had some jersey in it, even for a split second, for us to even have more clarity about this call. And these guys are making these calls in real time. I mean, it's, it is so hard to officiate the speed and quality of play at the NFL or NBA or Major League Baseball level. It really is. So um, I am sympathetic to officials in that way. And then the only other qualifier that I'll throw out there is this. Let's say there's no call made, okay? Then do we hear Chiefs fans, you know, I mean, you know Chiefs fans, I guess, yes. griping in this <laughs> yes. case that no call was made? So does it hold up on, on both ends? You know, maybe in this case it does, and that we're griping about, well, not we, but people are griping about a call being made in this situation. Well, what if it wasn't made? Would there be the same moaning and groaning going on at the same time? I don't know. But that would be the only other qualifier we would have for this, this particular situation. Well, you don't have to imagine it. Remember a couple of years ago with the New Orleans Saints and the Rams game, this, this, this a, a mugging uh, on, the, on what should have been a game-winning drive, and that was a no-call and they're still talking about that as one of the worst no calls uh, in in pro football history. I was twenty five feet away from that play, and uh, there you go. Yeah, and I I remember thinking that my personal safety and several others around me were in jeopardy <laughs> in that building 
um, when that no call was made. It that, okay, all right, yeah, there you go. Okay, so again, I, I don't know what the heck I'm talking about because Chris, I'm glad that you reminded me of that. I mean, I literally two minutes before that that no call was made in that game, I was figuring out how I was going to juggle my NBA schedule and whether or not I was going to be getting on a plane to go to Atlanta for the Super Bowl because that's the way it was unfolding at the Superdome that day. And then that penalty changed everything. And I was like, well, I guess my NBA schedule is just fine. I'm not going to the Super Bowl <laughs> because of that one play. So, golly, all the stuff I said prior to Chris mentioning that, <laughs> feel free to edit out at this point. But I, I, I do think, no, though. No, it feeds right in. He said, what if it wasn't called? Yeah. Now we know what would happen if it wasn't yeah. called. Right. I do think, though, there's a difference between when we're talking about judgment calls there's difference between a call you should or shouldn't make and a blown call. I mean, baseball is very much about blown calls. There's few judgment calls in that, unless it's like, you know, a check swing for strike three to end a playoff series, which happened very recently. Like, oh, I don't know if you should call a check swing strike three. I'm saying more about that pass interference call in the Saints game. That was an obvious mistake that was made, right? I'm thinking more along... Is it something where it's, should the level of egregiousness determine whether or not a call was made? That's sort of what I'm getting at. Well, um, I, I'm totally on board with what Chris and Sean are saying. I mean, I think you have to call it if you see it. Uh, it is different what you're saying if it's if you missed a call or it's an egregious call. Like, you know, I remember LeBron got really upset a couple weeks ago when yeah. the refs obviously missed that call against the Celtics on the drive. I mean, he clearly got fouled, but they missed it. So that's different than whether you call or not. Now, Correct. If, if the ref was looking right at it and didn't call it, yeah, that would be, to me, that would be really bad. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't really have a lot else to uh, to say about it. And, you know, if you don't call those, and if there is an unwritten rule that, okay, within in the last 30 seconds, we're not going to call certain things. We'll well, guess what? The players are going to start trying to get away with more because they know they can. And that impacts the game just as great as a call like the other night. So, Well, true. Adam, you've, you've pushed a real button with me on your PAT today. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I just two more things and then I'll let it go. Um, one is I, it drives me crazy. Two things drive me crazy. Well, there, there's a lot of – how long have you all got? Anyway, <laughs> two things that drive me crazy with regard to this is is that a lot of times we'll see – we talk about the whistle getting established. A particular crew um, has a certain way of how they view, like you said, time score situation with regard to how the game is officiated. And once the players figure out what's the whistle going to be like today, then then that's the that's the way we're going to call this game. I'd like to see that play all the way through. I don't like when a, a whistle or a tone is established on how physical or whatever they're going to let a team play, and then all of a sudden that whistle changes midstream. That. That bothers me because I know enough players that, who have said it's it's really hard to change that midstream. And then the other thing is with regard to you know time and situation, I can't tell you how many times, end of a quarter, end of a half, you'll see a guy heave up a desperation shot to try and beat the buzzer. They're going to get one last look, maybe it's a half-court shot or whatever, and sure enough, there's contact, and they just wave it off. It's no good, and we're going to the locker room at the end of the half. <laughs> if if it was a foul on a jump shot at the two-minute mark, why is it not a foul on a jump shot from half court with .2 on the clock? So, yeah, I, I understand the frustration here. I've provided you no answers, but all you've done is given me a form to bitch and moan a little bit. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> well done. 
That's uh, that's what we're here for. Sometimes it's just what you need. It's just what you need. Uh, well, I don't know if we've solved this issue, but we've definitely established some good points for the uh, the conversation going forward. So thank you guys for weighing in on that. And of course, keeping us abreast on everything happening around Gator Nation. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Thanks. Much like Tim Walton has done across the street for softball, Kevin O'Sullivan has become the standard bearer for longevity and success in his tenure with the baseball program, with the 2017 national title serving as the crown jewel. As his team begins a campaign they hope leads to Omaha for the first time since 2018, Jeff Cardozo caught up with Sully and began by asking about the anticipation leading up to first pitch. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a fairly long offseason like, like they all seem, but uh, we are excited about getting back on the field on Friday night and, and having a chance to play against somebody else. And, and when we get to, uh, to see on Friday night, it, you know, it appears and coming to the scrimmages and looking different things, a lot of options. And I know you're really excited about the depth of this roster and certainly we'll run through some of the things, but it does seem like you've kind of got the roster where, uh, where, where you've wanted to have it for a while. Yeah, I mean, I think last year we were really young and um, I think it's been well documented that we, we hit our stride about two-thirds of the way through and finished the last 12 games in the league at 9-3 and three and positioned ourselves, uh, making a long run or deep run into the SEC tournament to have the opportunity to host at home. And um, we've added some new players, obviously, to the roster and went into the portal and got a couple players. So I think, I think, I think the roster has some depth to it. And, um, you know, we just we, – we still have some question marks as far as, you know, offensively we've got – um, four guys for really two positions right now. It looks like um, maybe five with with Curlin and Fabian and Thomas and Shellnut and and Luke Heyman between second base and the DH spot. So um, uh, we we still got some questions. Actually, we were just talking about it this morning that we still um, got a day or two to kind of figure this thing out. But we'll mix and match on the weekend. We'll do that for the first four weeks like we usually do to try to figure out what our team looks like before SEC play. What do you think that run at the end of last year did for some of those younger players? Because you're right. I mean, there was so many out there that were really experiencing college baseball for the first time. Maybe they got tired, but you guys did a really good job of mixing and, and switching guys in and out of the lineup. But certainly they got a lot of experience. Yeah, I think when we... We moved Sterling in from right field to second and, and gave Ty Evans a chance to play. I think that kind of changed some things. Obviously, Brandon Sprout taking over the number one spot in our rotation and, and Brandon Neely having the year that he did as a freshman. Um, I think a couple of those things really you know, gave us a little bit of a boost, but quite frankly, I think the freshmen um, you know, started to gain some experience and and they just got better as the season goes on, and I guess that's all you can ask for. Your, your job is really hard as a college baseball coach because you go out and try to recruit. You know, are guys going to sign and go pro? Or are they going to come back? But you know, maybe sometimes the uh, the best recruits are the guys you, you already had that don't end up signing. And you mentioned Brandon Spro. You know, getting him back is obviously huge. BT's decision to come back. A couple of veterans right there that should lead this ball club. Yeah, I mean, I've said that all along. Um, Jack Leggett at Clemson used to say that all the time. That sometimes your best recruits are the ones. Either A, you don't get, or B, you know, they come back to school. So getting Brandon back was huge. Obviously getting BT back, you know, um, Josh Rivera had a chance to sign professionally. Um, Colby Halter had a chance to sign. So getting all those guys back, obviously, is, 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 a, is, a, is a huge plus for us. 
And a huge plus, you mentioned the transfer portal as well. You know, you got a guy that we're going to see on on the weekends here for Gator baseball fans that I know you're really excited about to uh, to showcase in Hurston. Yeah, he he'll he'll start on Saturday for us, and um, he had a really good year last year at Southern Miss, and obviously was a part of the USA team this summer. But Hurston's got a great arm, and another pitcher that's got a chance like Brandon to go really good in the draft, possibly first round pick, and. You know, we sh- we should as long as we stay healthy. You know, that should be a really, really, really good one-two punch. At, you know, with our rotation and probably as good as anybody in the country. And, and all these times that you've been to Omaha, and you know more than anybody else since you've taken over, that's almost been the staple of this program is to have those guys at the top of the rotation, bring guys in, and certainly in seventeen with that pitching staff, and you know even early on with you know you go back to to Logan and Huddy and, and all that other stuff. So to to have a punch like that, it, it helps you win a lot of games, doesn't it? Yeah, when we won it in seventeen, we we didn't have a whole lot of depth, um, but we had three really good starters, and we had a guy that was. A lockdown closer and, and Michael Byrne and you know if you remember we we only had w- really one true left-hander on you know in the pen and that was Horvath and we'd have to you know bring him in from center field so we didn't have a whole lot of you know a whole lot of depth but what we did have and hopefully this year is going to be some somewhat similar that we're going to have three really really good you know starters and a guy at the back end that can you know that we can rely on um, you know, to close out games. And I know that was, you know, part of the, the early season struggles, just trying to find that guy on the back end. So it does sound like there are some options for uh, somebody to close out games. Yeah, I, I think the question mark, the, one of the biggest question marks was what were we going to do on Sunday? And with Cags playing first base and being a two-way guy, it's it's difficult to bring him out of the pen unless we were going to designate him as the closer. And I, I think right now he needs innings. He has not pitched a whole lot since, you know, since his senior year in high school. So, you know, it's it's fluid. I mean, our rotation at the beginning of the year last year um, was was totally different at the end. You know, with 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 Brandon Neely and and Nick Pogue, and and neither none of those three guys started opening weekend. Four of the nine guys in the lineup, you know, opening weekend last year were not in the lineup at the end. So. We're gonna we're, we're gonna see if Cags can hold down the third spot, and you know, and then then the big question comes: What do you do with Neely? So, the thought right now, since he has pitched in our league and and understands and has pitched in some high leverage situations, is to use him at the back end of the game and kind of be like a Michael Byrne. He's gonna throw strikes, field his position, holds runners. Blake Purnell is another option at the end. Um, he's he. He came off a, a solid year last year, but he is he's improved immensely. And then we have a, a left-hander that our, our fans are going to hear a lot about named Cade Fisher, who's a freshman. And we can use him left on left late in games. He could be a midweek starter, but he would be a guy um, left-handed that would be you know one of the first guys out of the pen. Yeah, so obviously uh, a lot of options, which is certainly uh, music to to a lot of people's ears. And you mentioned Cag; nobody really got to see him on the mound, but they certainly saw him and in, in the way that he hit towards the tail end of the year. I know that was a really big spark, and to have him in the lineup and, and obviously protection there for for Wyatt too. That's going to be a, a really fun watching those two guys this year. Yeah, I mean he he, he you know to start the season he'll he'll hit third behind behind Wyatt. He'll hit second. Mikey Robertson will lead off and play center field, but. You know, that's that's going to be key for Cags to have a good year offensively to give Wyatt some protection. 
When, and I know even talking to you in the fall, talking about Josh Rivera, you mentioned him coming back. You know, if, if that bat gets going, which we saw a lot of in the fall and even in the early spring, that could be so helpful for this lineup. No doubt. Defensively, I've said, you know, this a bunch that next year when he's gone, we're all of us as a staff and our fans and everybody is going to really appreciate the way he plays defense. It'll, it'll be missed, but. He has had a really good fall. He's, his approach to the game as far as dealing with failure has changed. You know, he's done a 180, and he's come out this spring, and he's swung the bat really good, so I'm hoping he could take it into the season. Well, and, and so you had a couple of guys swing the bat really well last year. You know, Sterling ends up going in the first round. Judd, the, the amount of homers he hit over the last couple of years, I think second in the country. So you miss a couple of bats there, but um, what, what are we looking at option-wise out there? Uh, well, Wyatt will be in left, obviously. And then we got Mikey Robertson, who was, who missed last year with the hamstring in center field. And, you know, we'll start the season with Ty Evans and right. But we got some depth there, too. We got Matty Prevesk, who swung the bat really well. Shell Nuts taking some fly balls in left. That's still a work in progress. But trying to figure out a way to get his bat in the lineup consistently. And um, we've got a left-handed hitter that transferred from Rutgers named Richie Sheikheifer who, you know, is, is about a 330 career hitter in the Big Ten. So we've got some options. So, yeah, but I think that's how we'll probably start it right now. And for Gator fans that don't know a lot about uh, Robertson, obviously speed a part of his game if you're putting him at the top of the order. Yeah, he's he, he had a really good fall. He's got off to a little bit of a slow start this spring, but he can really run. He'll run a 4-0, 3-9 down the line. We're hoping that he can get, you know, be one of those guys we haven't had in a while to steal 25, 30 bases and, he plays a really good center field, and he's 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 about as good a bunner that we've had, which is not a big part of the game anymore. It's more about home runs and extra base hits, but you know he can drag and push with with as good as anybody we've had. A lot of uh, Gator fans excited because early on in the season, a ton of games here at the Florida Ballpark. You know how much you love this place and the fans showing up. So when when you look at that. What are you trying to accomplish with, with the rest of the coaching staff and, and figuring out maybe the first three, four, five weeks before SEC play starts? Well, we'd like to zero in on a lineup that's going to be fairly consistent. And then obviously, you know, we've got to figure out, you know, the, you know, the Sunday starter and how the back end of the bullpen is going to look. So um, Ryan Slater's gotten better. Ficarata has, has had a really good preseason as well. Fisher Jameson has made a jump. Yoel Tahad is another one, another freshman that looks like he can help us on the weekends in long relief and, and be one of those midweek starters too. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll mix and match like we always do. Our, our goal is to, to have a much clearer picture of what our team looks like, you know, before we play SEC play. And there's a clear picture of what this SEC is. I know you know the grind. You've been in it for so long now, but you look up and down the top 25 preseason-wise, and there's a gazillion SEC teams. So it's going to be a grind as always, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's it's never easy. And the league's as good as it's ever been. I say that every year. But, you know, keep in mind our midweeks are not easy, mm-hmm. too. We we have two midweeks after we open up against Charleston Southern, you know, one at home, one away against South Florida. And then we play JU twice and play Florida State three times. And, you know, as we always do, and we play Miami again, who's really talented this year. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the schedule is set up for us. If we, if we win our games um, and we have a good good year, that our RPI should be as good as anybody's in the country. Yeah, always is right up there at the uh, the very top. Well, Sully, you're the, you're at the top of uh, my list, and certainly everybody else, Gator fan wise. You know, everybody's excited as much as excited as you are, and um, it's uh, it's finally time to play some baseball. Yeah, we're, we're excited. We 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 expect a really good crowd this weekend. I think we got some rain coming in Friday morning, but it should be out by by mid afternoon. So. 
Um, it looks like the weather's going to be great other than, like I said, Friday morning. But we're excited, looking forward to having a great crowd this weekend and, you know, and hopefully getting off to a good start. All right, Sully, appreciate it. All right, thanks, Jeff. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.